Kings. And if you're particular about it, you can turn to chapter 18. I would like to read two chapters, but uh, that would take too much time. Verse number one. It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty-nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves, break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to the brazen serpent. He called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that, there, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. We'll stop reading there. Like I say, I would like to go on, and we'll refer to, refer to some of the next chapter. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This we know to be true. All Scripture is given by inspiration, but... Isn't it true that some scriptures are more impactful than others? Aren't there chapters in the Word of God, which you have read many times, which have never really blessed your soul in comparison to John 17 or um, one of the chapters of Romans or Ephesians? Could we say that there are some scriptures which are more important than other scriptures? <laughs> I'm not sure that I would ever say that. But if we were so bold, by what criteria might we say that? One scripture is more important than the other. For example, are the words of the Lord Jesus more valuable than the writings of Moses or Paul? I know some Christians that would cut off their left arm before they owned a Bible with red ink in it. My Bible has both red and black ink, and over the years I've grown colorblind. It's there, but I just don't notice it anymore. It's not a big deal. Uh, but speaking of the words of the Lord Jesus... They are often repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and quoted elsewhere. Doesn't that make them more important than what Peter says one time in 1 Peter chapter 2? Chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, whatever. Doesn't repetition indicate that the Holy Spirit considers something to be really important? Yes, but not necessarily so. In that regard, the history that we have in 2 Kings 18 and 19 is repeated in Chronicles. It is also repeated in the book of Isaiah. So we have this at least three times in the Word of God. 
I'm not going to dogmatically declare that this proves the importance of this material, but I am going to say that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is telling us you can't ignore it. Here it is. There are lessons here. Hezekiah was one of the younger kings of Judah, beginning his reign, as we have seen, at the age of 25. The history of his life is filled with color and intrigue. Only part of it we will be able to look at this morning. He was one of the good guys. Generally speaking, he is an example to us. During the time he ruled in Judah, ten tribes of Israel were taken into Assyrian captivity because of their sin. The Lord was judging them for their sins. Judah and Simeon remained more true to the Lord than their cousins to the north because they had better secular leadership and they listened to God's prophets. There were prophets in the northern tribes, but uh, most people didn't pay them much attention. The people in Judah did listen to the prophets a little bit more. In our ongoing study of practical faith, King Hezekiah provides us with some good lessons. We are going to look at those this morning. Hezekiah was a man who trusted in the Lord. Verse number 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. If we said that Isaiah was the pastor of Israel at this time, then we might also add that Hezekiah was uh, one of the deacons, was a good deacon, a good servant. The Lord chose a man full of faith. And we might add, if we were taking scriptures out of the book of Acts, a, a man full of the Holy Ghost as well, to set over the people of Judah. Hezekiah reigned 29 tumultuous years in Jerusalem. During those three decades, when circumstances drove him toward depression, drove him toward despair, as it did several times, his faith lifted him back up eventually. The royal historian declared that Hezekiah's faith exceeded that of any other king in Judah. Who am I to quarrel with the word of God? Nevertheless, we see other kings that were very strong in faith. One important thing to consider in regard to Hezekiah's faith, that it was not static. It was not stagnant. He didn't merely trust Jesus as his Savior and then get on board the gravy train to take him on to heaven. That was not his kind of faith. He didn't trust the Lord and then pat the back of Isaiah encouraging him to bring Israel back to the things of the Lord. He got right into it. He stepped on the necessities of the day with both feet. His faith was as practical as that of James. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say that he hath faith and have not works? Can that kind of faith save 
Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, I have faith. Or a man may say, Thou hast faith. I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. That was Hezekiah. I know the contexts between James and Hezekiah are quite different. James is talking about salvation. But we're still talking in the, about the same general subject, faith. Faith. King Hezekiah demonstrated his trust in God by risking his throne to do the will of God. That's faith. He attacked the ever-present propensity of Israel to slide into idolatry. He destroyed the denominational uh, cathedrals that were on the high hills, the high places where the idolaters worshipped. He tore down the graven images of their false doctrines. He even went so far as to crush the brazen serpent which Moses had many years earlier lifted up over the nation of Israel when the fiery serpents were biting and killing people. Hezekiah got rid of it. He destroyed it. Can you imagine how this struck at the heart of Israel's crumbling religion? Later, the Lord Jesus would point back to that same serpent and say, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This was an important event in Israel's history. And this was an important object, in a sense. You can be sure that the Catholics in Israel at that time were furious with the king for destroying their religious relic. Hezekiah called the brazen serpent Nehushtan. It's just a piece of brass. Come on. It's just a piece of brass. Over all other things, we need the Lord God. Not our memories of the Lord. Not our past victories. Not our former heroes. We need to throw those brazen serpents away and focus on the Lord. We need him right here and now. That's what Hezekiah was trying to do. Not only nationally, but personally, Hezekiah claved to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments. The word clave is kind of misleading in our day and age. It means to cleave. To, I should say, that's of course what it means, uh, he was clinging to the Lord. He, he was as attached to the Lord as uh, your puppies are attached to you, going everywhere that you go. Not yours yet, maybe someday. Hezekiah's faith in Jehovah drove him to serve the Lord with all his heart, with all his strength, with all his might, with all his mind. And who cares about the consequences? I have the Lord. And as I've been trying to say from the outset of these lessons, the Lord blessed that man's faith. Scripture says, And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. 
I know that it could be argued that God blessed Hezekiah's obedience. And I will never argue against that. But I remind you that in this case, that man's obedience flowed out of his faith. God is never delighted in robotic obedience. The, the, the following of command simply because I have to do it for whatever reason we may think we have to do it. The Lord wants loving obedience. He wants service out of our hearts, strengthened by faith in the Lord and in what the Lord might do through this service I'm providing Him. Verse number 7 points to two specific God-given victories in Hezekiah's life. There were others, but two are mentioned right here. First, he subjugated those stubborn Philistines who had been a thorn in Israel's flesh for so, so long. And for some time prior to Hezekiah, Judah had been forced to pay some sort of tribute to the king of Assyria. Maybe it was grain. Maybe it was gold. I don't know. But in his faith, in his faithfulness to God, Hezekiah refused to make those payments. And God blessed him. For four years, things went along smoothly. Yet, in his fourth year on the throne, the king of Assyria took notice of Hezekiah's disrespect. Where is my tribute? Where is my tribute? For four years, the faith of Hezekiah was uh, moving along quite smoothly, unhindered by much opposition. Sure, the op-ed articles in the Jerusalem Times were against him, but uh, uh, he could survive those things. But then things changed. The Lord chose to test Hezekiah's faith, to severely test his faith. There is always room for growth in our Christian lives. And this includes our ability to trust the Lord. How, from what depths will you trust me? How will you be able to see me through all this fog of disaster? How good is your, your spiritual eyesight? There will be no growth in our lives, there will certainly be no growth in our faith without testing, without exercise. And even though God may use physical disasters, He may use personal and family tragedies, and even the sins of wicked men, those tests ultimately come from the Lord. In verse 10, the powerful Assyrians overran Samaria, the northern ten tribes of Israel. It was at that point that Israel went into captivity, Assyrian captivity. Many Christians don't understand that Israel divided during the days of, uh, after Solomon's reign in the day. They divided. The ten northern tribes went one direction and Judah and Simeon uh, and a few others, scattered others, went 
south, shall we say, or north. Going south is a bad term, isn't it? They went, they, they, they went more properly. As separate nations, they both fell into sin, bringing judgment from God upon them. But Israel went first. Israel was taken by the Assyrians into captivity. Judah followed them 130 so years later, going into Babylonian captivity. Try to keep that in mind as you read the word of God. In this chapter, after the capture of Israel, the Assyrians took some of the frontier cities of Judah, particularly on the north. Then they marched right up to the walls of the capital city of Jerusalem. I have to be honest with you. At that point, Hezekiah turned to the flesh in order to address this new problem that came along. Like everybody else, his faith was not exactly perfect. Once again, the Assyrian king demanded tribute. And this time it was with interest. I want a lot, an enormous sum of money. Forget about sending grain. I know that you don't have very much. I want gold. I want silver. Apparently, terrified, Ezekiel took silver out of the temple. He, ha he added that to his own personal wealth, and he sent it out to the armies of the Assyrians to take on to uh, uh, the, the king, Sennacherib. He, Hezekiah, may have considered this to be a judicious move. He may have thought the Lord would be pleased with this. But he didn't pray about it. He didn't trust the Lord for protection in refusing to make the payment. He didn't even consult with Isaiah about it. He just went ahead. The faith of Hezekiah temporarily vanished. Reminding us that ours too may be gone when we need it. In that particularly troublesome situation. We need to work on our faith when the sun is shining. Before the storms come. We need to constantly learn to trust the Lord for this little thing and that little thing. So that when the big thing comes along we might have the spiritual muscle to trust the Lord again. An incidental lesson coming from this chapter is that compromise with God's enemy is never good for the saint. It just doesn't work. Sennacherib looked at all of Hezekiah's gold and his silver, and he thought to himself, he's probably got more than this. He's probably got... He's probably got a lot stashed away in that city and in that fancy temple of his. Why don't we just march in there, subdue the city, and take it all for ourselves? The compromise didn't work. It just uh, increased the, the greed of the enemy in this particular case. He wa uh, Sennacherib wanted it all. But then at that point, Hezekiah began to wake up and return to his faith in Jehovah. Sennacherib sent an army under the command of three military generals. One of those 
generals was more highly educated than the others. Rabshakeh could read and write and speak Hebrew. Maybe other languages, several other languages as well. He spearheaded the Assyrian assault on Judah with a form of psychological warfare. Addressing Hezekiah's men on the walls of Jerusalem, he denigrated Jehovah and the faith of Hezekiah. He said, Thou sayest, but they're vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. You have nothing. You couldn't touch my army. Your little militia is nothing. But then with the ignorance of an idolater, Rabshakeh said, If you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, if we, we trust in Jehovah our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? It was not. Hezekiah was removing the high places of the idolaters. He was encouraging, Israel, encouraging Judah to trust in the Lord, not these other things. Rabshakeh has got that all twisted around. The Syrian also pointed to the defeat of the armies and the gods of other idolatrous countries. But that has nothing to do with Jehovah. He didn't understand what the Syrian Naaman had learned about the Lord. Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Rabshakeh concluded in verse number 30, Neither let Hezekiah make you to trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Overhearing all of this was the omniscient God, Jehovah. What the Assyrian was saying were fighting words as far as the Lord was concerned. God is extremely jealous of his name and his honor. Don't ever dare God to strike you down with lightning. I'm pretty sure he won't. But next week you might get hit by a truck. Don't dare God. Don't speak evil of him. How did Hezekiah's faith respond to the challenge? For that we go to the next chapter. And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard this, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Israel desperately needed Jehovah at this point. Hezekiah needed the Lord at this point. What should God's people do when they need God's blessing? When they need revival? When they need an awakening? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Sometimes all it takes is one person, one saint of God, to become sincerely concerned for the Lord's glory. If that person will take the steps suggested in 2 Chronicles 7.14, the Lord may step in and miraculously deliver the nation. 
In this case, the Lord sent Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, which with, with which the servants of king of Assyria hath blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him. I see blasphemed and blast in my English, and I tie him again. I don't know if there's any tie in Hebrew or not. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians four hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, I wonder who the, they were. The dead ones didn't. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrok, his god, that Adremelech and Sharezer, his sons, smote him with the sword. It was such a loving family. And they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezar Hayden, another son, reigned in his stead. We aren't told what actually happened to General Rabsh Rabshakeh. But before he withdrew, and before so many of his army were slaughtered by God, the God whom he offended, he sent a letter to Hezekiah, repeating many of the things that he had shouted over the wall uh, a little bit earlier. This should remind us that the enemy of God is persistent. He will not give up. Even when he knows he is defeated, he will not give up. And that means we must never give up either. Don't stop praying in faith for the salvation of that friend of yours. Trusting the Lord to save him. Don't stop pleading with the Lord for revival. Or that the Lord would bring your church once again into the forefront of God's spiritual battles. Don't, don't quit trusting God for spiritual growth for growth in your soul, for growth in your church. Trust the Lord for these things. And if Satan appears to be getting angrier and angrier, just work on that faith more. Our God is greater than all Satan's ambassadors. This time, with Rabshakeh's letter in his hand, Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Verse number 14. This is what faith does with the problems it faces. It takes them and spreads them out before the omnipotent God. It simply shares and willingly leaves them with the Lord. To proofread and correct. Faith prays over them. At this point... The Holy Spirit shares with us one of the great prayers of the Word of God. Let's see, where does it start? Verse number 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, 
which hath sent Him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Israel have destroyed the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord God, I beseech Thee, save Thou us out of His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that Thou art the Lord God, even Thou only. Destroy them, Lord, for Your glory. Not for us. Who are we? Why do I pray that the Lord who dwells between the cherubims would come and dwell b b with us between these lighted walls? Why do I pray trusting the Lord to hear me and to see the wickedness that surrounds us in our world today? Why do I pray that the Lord would flex His muscles filling us with power to do His work? Why do I plead that the Lord would set me on fire and let me run around our city like a serial arsonist setting the place ablaze? That the kingdoms of the earth may know that the Lord is God, even Jehovah alone. Christ will not be found in the parish halls of the Episcopalians or in the baptistries of the Russellites, or in the fonts of uh, uh, the Catholics. It's hard to find him in the massive theaters of the megachurches. But I want him to be found here. I want him to be with us this morning and, and every time we gather together. I want him to be here with, I, with us. I yearn for God's glory. In you and in me. I pray that the Lord will bless our church if He will do it for His glory. In verse 31 we read, The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. The word zeal in Hebrew carries an interesting echo. Almost four times as often as zeal that word is translated in some form of envy or jealousy. That should remind us that the Lord cares very much about His honor and His name. The statement in that verse doesn't come from the heart of Hezekiah, but from the lips of the Lord Himself. Jehovah is jealous of His name. He despises its misuse. Hezekiah heard that. came from the Lord through Isaiah. I wonder if later in his life, if the faith of Hezekiah didn't continue to use that statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Perhaps that's something that we should strive to en uh, engrave into to our prayer meeting. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. O Lord of heaven and earth, we beseech you to be zealous for your honor and your glory. Show your anger against the, uh, the people of this world who are corrupting your name. Drive back the enemy of the truth. 
Capture souls, glorify yourself and your name in the saving of sinners, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that the Lord is God, even the Lord alone. Please, Lord, strengthen and empower our faith, our trust in you, our expectation of these blessings. We have no other desire than to know that you are being glorified in our life or in our death, as we've read elsewhere. Drive back the Assyrians of our day. Bring professing Christians into the forefront of the battle once again. Bring idolaters around to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hezekiah gives us an example of faith. There's a lot to learn in these two chapters.